it's wonderful to be with you today. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. And uh, I'm just so excited that we are on this journey together over like I love you. Uh, I counted a great joy and privilege uh, to be uh, on this road with you. And today we are continuing a series. We started it last week and we're going to continue it. Next week we'll wrap this up. And it's one of those things where it's an incredible affirmation to so many of us because Overlake, you are a church family that in many, many ways is already on this journey that we're going to be talking about today. But in some other ways, it's going to be a challenge. And you're going to find that even if you are on the journey of what we're going to be talking about today, that, that God will use today to maybe challenge you just a little bit. But I want to get in. You might want to grab your notes out of your handout. And what you'll see is the series is called Us for Them. And it seems that in so many discussions today, in so many political philosophies today, in so many ways in our culture, in America today, the world is neatly divided into two camps, us and them. And it's just everywhere. It's just prevalent. And, and it's not just that it's us and them, but it, it, it's not too far of a distance between uh, us and them and then us over them. In other words, we, we and our needs and, and our wants, that's prioritized above them, their needs and their wants. And then it's not too far of a distance from there to where it's us versus them. And there's actual conflict and there's actual animosity that arises between camps. But when you get into the scripture and when you start to look specifically at the person of Jesus Christ, you will see a totally different picture. In fact, what you'll see in Jesus is this, that, that he is in perfection, that he's with the Father, and, and, it's, and it's, it's him, and then everyone else on planet Earth is them. And that means you and me. And, and he did not think that that was an okay scenario to continue. And so he came to us and he lived with us and he showed us how to live and he showed us the heart of the Father and then he died for us, right? He, he provided grace and righteousness for us. He did all these things for us. And so in Jesus' mind, there is no us and them. In Jesus, there is only us. Everyone is us. And I, I know I'm getting a little confusing. So let me make it really, really clear. If it's helpful at all, to use the phrases us and them. You need to realize that it is not us or them. It is not us over them. And certainly it is not us versus them. But in Jesus Christ, it is us for them. It is us for them that we are to, to care for and have compassion for and, and engage in justice for them. That that is the only thing that matters. And specifically, when we use these phrases, you need to realize it is us for the vulnerable. And again, we look at Jesus because Jesus is the one who came. Jesus is the one who gave. Jesus is the one who served. So he is our model in this, that we want to care for and to give toward and to serve the vulnerable. The vulnerable in our neighborhoods and in our parishes. The vulnerable in our region. The vulnerable in our country. And the vulnerable in the world. And friends, that is the business of Jesus' followers. It's one of the main reasons why, why Jesus established his church in the first place, so that we would be his hands and his feet, that we would be able to communicate tangibly the heart of God for everyone, for the vulnerable. 
And last week, what we did is we took a look at a passage in Scripture from Isaiah chapter 58. And if you, somehow you missed that, uh, you, know, you need to look that chapter up, Isaiah 58. Uh, you might want to go online and just go through it because it's just so interesting to see that what we're talking about goes through the whole canon of Scripture. So that was Old Testament, Isaiah 58. Today we're taking a look at a passage from the New Testament This is the words of Jesus. It's actually the last sermon Jesus ever preached in Matthew chapter 25, near the end of that chapter. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it up. Matthew 25. We're going to read it, and it'll be on the screen. It's in your notes as well. But we're going to read it from the message paraphrase today. And the reason why we want to read it from the message paraphrase is this. It's somewhat of a common chapter. This is somewhat of a known passage. Many of you, you'll be familiar with it, and I don't want you to be familiar with it. Because when we're familiar with it, oftentimes we dismiss, oh yeah, I've heard that before. Oh yeah, I've read that before. We, we don't want that. We want to hear this fresh on our, in our minds. So, so these are the words of Jesus, again, from the message. He says, when he finally arrives, blazing in beauty and all his angels with him, The Son of Man will take his place on his glorious throne. Let me pause just for a moment. That's Jesus referring to himself. He would often refer to himself as the Son of Man. And he's saying, when I return, all the angels are going to be with me. I'm going to sit on the throne, right? This is the scene I'm going to be in. He says, then all the nations will be arranged before him. And he will sort the people out, much as a shepherd sorts out sheep, and goats, putting the sheep to his right and the goats to his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Enter, you who are blessed by my father. Take what's coming to you in this kingdom. It's been ready for you since the world's foundation. And here's why I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was homeless and you gave me a room. I was shivering and you gave me clothes. I was sick and you stopped to visit. I was in prison and you came to me. Then those sheep are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we ever see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will say, I'm telling the solemn truth. Whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. And now we come to the part of his sermon which... American Christians do not like to read, okay? And, and here it is. He keeps going. Then he will turn to the goats, the ones on his left, and say, get out, worthless goats. You're good for nothing but the fires of hell. And why? Because I was hungry and you gave me no meal. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was homeless and you gave me no bed. I was shivering and you gave me no clothes. Sick and in prison and you never visited. Then those goats are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or homeless or shivering or sick or in prison and didn't help? He will answer them, I'm telling the solemn truth. Whenever you failed to do one of these things to someone who was being overlooked or ignored, that was me. You failed to do it to me. Then those goats will be herded to their eternal doom, but the sheep to their eternal reward. So interesting, so powerful. In this sermon, what Jesus is clearly communicating is how weighty, how important acts of care and compassion and justice are to him. 
how, how absolutely essential they are to God's heart and how, it, how important it is for those who follow him to be engaged in. And, and it's a good question to try to answer this. What will the legacy be of those who call themselves by the name of Jesus? In this generation, what is the legacy of Jesus' followers going to be? Is it going to look like this passage? Is it going to communicate this kind of care? And, and so the challenge is that, that we would understand the heart of God in this. You know, last week we looked at a, a, a verse that Jesus taught. And it's a really well-known verse. It's actually so well-known, it's called the Golden Rule. And Jesus says this, he says, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. And last week we talked about it. We talked about the challenge of this verse is that you would put yourself in someone else's shoes. That you would actually place yourself in, in the position of the person that you see in need. So you would just imagine, right, you pretend, you see someone who's hungry, you would imagine, you'd say to yourself, if I was hungry, how would I want someone to treat me? I would want someone to give me food, therefore I will give this person food. If I was, uh, you know, uh, shivering and I had no clothing and, and, and I was in that position, how would I hope that someone would reach out to me? Oh, I'd hope that someone would offer me a coat. L let me be the one to offer a coat. And, and so on and so forth. That, that when we see someone in need, what we would do is we would imagine that was us. And then we would care for them how we would want someone else to care for us. Does this make sense? It's really not that complicated. I'm sure you learned this in Sunday school in third grade. Okay. But in Matthew 25, Jesus ups the ante. He no longer says, if you see someone in need, I want you to pretend that they're you. He says, when you see someone in need, I want you to pretend they're me. I want you to see them as me, the Lord of the universe, the one who left everything, the one who came to you, the one who served you, the one who cared for you, the one who died for you. I want you, when you look at someone in need, to see me. Mother Teresa calls this Jesus in his distressing disguise. And the challenge is not that we would pretend that the person in need is Jesus. Not that we would have a mental imagination that when I serve a person in need, I'm serving Jesus. What this passage says is somehow in the supernatural, somehow in the spiritual reality of things, when you serve a person in need, you are serving Jesus. When you interact with that person, you're interacting with the Lord of the universe himself. And so it's a challenge, right? It's upping the, the ante. Powerful stuff. This is haunting. This is compelling. I hope some of you find it absolutely inspiring as well. But it does bring a question to mind. It's a question I want to spend just a moment answering. And the question is this. Is this passage, is it, uh, is it showing us how to get saved? 
is Jesus laying out a prescription for salvation? Because obviously all the elements are there. You know, there's elements of judgment and separation and inviting into eternal glory and, and, and missing out on eternal glory. And, and so it seems like uh, some of you might even have jumped to the fact, oh, Jesus is telling us how to be saved. Well, the answer to that question is this. Matthew 25 refers to the fruit of salvation, not to the root of salvation. In other words, it's talking about what is displayed in a life of someone who's saved. It's not talking about how someone becomes saved. Because if Jesus, in this passage, was really describing how someone is to be saved, you'd have to agree he's not very clear. Uh, Jesus, uh, excuse me, you know, some of uh, uh, this is a great, great sermon, Jesus. But I, I, just a quick question. If I have to feed someone in order to get saved, how many people do I have to feed? And, and, and not only that, but how much should I feed them? Are you talking about four basic food groups? Are you just talking about a peanut butter sandwich? Like how, and, and if I go into the restaurant industry, does that mean I'm golden, right? Because I'm feeding a lot of people. Okay, you say to, to give them a bed if they don't have a bed, but, but what if it's dormitory style? Does that work? I mean, you get a lot of people in. How about if I just give a sleeping bag? Does that count, a pillow? Uh, what, what's, where's the line? Like, I, I just, I don't understand exactly what this means. You say visit someone in prison, uh, so I understand that, but does, if they're on probation, does that count? Like, how, how where's the line, and how do I know that I've crossed the line, and even as I bring up these questions, you can see how fruitless this line of thinking is. That's not at all what, what Jesus is having in mind in this, right? Because if you allow yourself to go that way and you start talking about how much work should I do in order to earn my salvation, you're missing the point. Because we are not saved by the things that we have earned. We're saved by the gift that we have received. And Jesus, really, really clearly, Jesus wants us to receive his grace, his salvation as a gift. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, for it is by grace you've been saved. You might want to circle the word grace. It's by grace, his grace, that you have been saved through faith, through our faith in him. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Circle the word gift. Grace and gift are attached. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's not by works. It's not, oh, I fed this many people so I've earned, or I've, I've cared for this many people, God, so you owe me, or hey, I've done this much good thing, and, and, and therefore I can look down on someone who hasn't done this much good thing. That's really bad English, I'm sorry. But you understand what the verse says. It's not by works so no one can boast. Grace is a gift. And this is true all throughout Scripture. It's not just a New Testament idea. It's true all throughout Scripture. In fact, if you go back to the very, very beginning, and the person of Abram, later to be known as Abraham, you read what happens to him, and, and the Bible is really clear. It says that he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He trusted God and it was gifted to him. This idea of salvation as a gift. And it's, it's all the way through the scriptures. In Exodus chapter 12, we read about the Israelites in Egypt. 
And we read about how the plagues were all coming and, and a plague was going to come that was so bad. But God said, listen, if you take the blood of a spotless lamb, if you take a blood of a pure lamb and you put the blood over the doorposts of your home, the threshold, right? If you put it above the threshold of your house, then, th- then that, that plague will pass over you. That salvation will be offered to you because that blood of a spotless lamb is above your home. And now we see in the New Testament that if we take the blood of the pure and spotless lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and we apply it over the doorpost of our heart, over the threshold of our priority, right? If, if we allow his blood to cover our sin, then, then destruction is passed over and we are saved. It's a gift. And you keep reading the story of the Israelites and you realize what God does is, is God gives them these ten commandments. He gives them the law. He gives them the ten commandments. But what he doesn't say is, you obey these ten commandments, and then I will set you free. What he does is he sets them free from Egypt, and he carries them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. And then he says to them, now I want you to obey. You see, salvation is always given as a gift. It's always given on God's initiative. God loves. He's settled the the issue of his love. God loves you. It's settled. The only thing we have to do is settle the issue of how we're going to respond. God says this in Ezekiel. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What this passage says is if God gets the heart, he'll get the rest. And salvation is offered as a gift. It's freely given, lavishly his grace poured out over us. And as we respond to it, And as we receive it, the Bible says the heart of stone that we have is removed and it's replaced with a heart of flesh. That God's spirit comes and dwells within us and and we are changed and we are being changed as we walk with him. And so all of that is going on. And in fact, I just want you to understand Yes, we will obey, and yes, we're prompted by his spirit to do amazing things, but that's not why we're saved. That's just what being saved looks like. The scripture says this in Romans 5 8. It says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You look at that, that line on your notes, I want you to circle the word that jumps out most at you. For some of you, it might be the word demonstrates. This is how God demonstrates his love. For some of you, it might be that the Christ died. Line. This is, Jesus died for me. But for me, when I look at that verse, it's the word while. While we were sinners, while we were far from God, before we ever thought to call out to God, he was calling out to us. Before we ever thought to have a care for God, God had a care for us. Before we ever had an inkling about serving God, God was serving us. While we were far from him, Christ died for us. 
It's his initiative. Salvation is offered as a gift. And so, friends, in this passage, Jesus is not telling us how to be saved. What Jesus is telling us in Matthew 25 is what our lives begin to look like as we are saved, as we are being saved, as we're living lives of salvation. It's not a passage that tells us how to be saved, but it has everything to do with what our lives will look like when we're saved. And of course, all of this stems from how Jesus has modeled his love and his care to us. The way that he came for us, the way that he has served us, the way that he meets us in our prison, in our bondage of sin. He has visited us, that he clothes us in our nakedness with his righteousness, the way he feeds us lovingly, what we need the most, his truth and his grace from his word, the way he comforts us in our affliction by his Holy Spirit. You need to understand because Jesus models everything he says. Now we're to take that and live our lives based on what he models. No, no, no. Jesus in Matthew 25 is not telling us how to be saved. But I do want to tell you how to be saved today. And it is so simple. God has made this so, so clear. It says this in Romans chapter 10 verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I did a little bit of research in that word everyone in the Greek, means everyone. (laughs) Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, the name of the Lord, Jesus. And what does it mean to call on Jesus? Well, you do need to believe in him to call on him. So there's there's that issue of, I I do believe that you are who you say you are. You're God, come to earth. And and, 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 and not only am I calling you, but I'm calling on you in trust. That I, I trust that as I call on you, you hear me. I trust that as I call on you, that, that you're going to meet me. And, and, and so there's that belief and there's that trust. And, and if we do that, then we receive the gift that he's, he's offering. The, the gift of his grace, the gift of his love, the gift of his forgiveness, the gift of salvation. That's how to be saved. Super easy. Maybe not easy. Super clear. Super clear. But once we're saved then it's time to get to work. You see, once we call on the name of the Lord, once, once we start understanding what it is that he's done for us, once he takes our heart of stone away, replacing it with a heart of flesh, now we have the invitation to begin to enact with others in this world the way that he has responded to us, right? And, and we just recognize that our lives begin to evidence the transformation of God's spirit within us. That as we continue to follow him, we want to follow him closer and closer. We want the priorities of our life to reflect his priorities. We want our heart's desire to begin to reflect God's heart's desire. We, we recognize that there's this, I've been changed, but I'm also being changed. And we understand that if we have been vertically reconciled to God, that we must be horizontally reconciled to our brother and our sister. This is what Jesus is describing in this passage. He's giving us a role description. He's describing what it is that his followers will be about in this world. And it's a beautiful thing. In fact, some of you you already know this. Our, Our church has three purposes. Our purposes are to love God and to love people and to serve the world. 
And often we get a little bit bunged up about that love people because it, it, how, how does it look practically or tangibly or who should I love? Or I, you know, I don't even really have the feelings of love so often in my life. So, so if I don't have the feelings, does it matter? And we, we get all, I need the warm fuzzy and then I'll do it. And, and we, we miss so much. I found this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest theologians of all time, says, fake it till you make it. He says, he says, look, you're getting all worked up. You don't have the emotion. You don't, you don't think you, you feel love, so you think until I feel love, I can't do anything. He says, you got it backwards. No, no, you reach out in love, and you care in compassion, and you extend yourself into, into service. And as you do these things, you will find that you are changed from within. And that as you actually do the things that Jesus is challenging us to do in Matthew 25, that we will find that our emotions follow our will. And if we choose to care, if we make the choice to serve, then our emotions will follow. This re reflects, if you might want, you want to write this down because this is powerful. How I can be sure that I'm on the road of salvation is this. A changed and changing lifestyle. A changed and changing lifestyle by the Spirit of God in me. There's assurance there. There's great joy there. There's a recognition that I am not all the way where I should be. But when I look in the rearview mirror, thank God Almighty, I am not all the way where I once was. I heard a pastor, Brian LaRitz, tell a story. He says, before I came to know Jesus 25 years ago, I used to cuss at the drop of a hat. He says, but now... Thanks to the grace of God, I don't cuss that fast anymore. <laughs> and so we recognize I am not perfect. I know I am not perfect. I humbly confess that I am not perfect. But when I look back to where God met me, I can see more and more evidence of his spirit at work in my life. I can see that I care about the hungry. I can see that I want to bring comfort to those who are in affliction. I can see that the needs of those in the world, they, they, they move me to something. And when I encounter the vulnerable, I want to act because Jesus saw me in my vulnerability and he acted. I want to show you a video right now, and, and this is a video of how this might look in the lives of Jesus followers at Overlake, because it's a video about Jesus followers at Overlake. So go ahead and watch this.
as we think about those in our community and world who are vulnerable or who don't know Jesus, it's actually fitting right now that we would pause and take communion. This is our moment to ponder what the cross means to us and to thank Jesus for relationship with him. Um, usually we ask you to go to a table during the communion time, and this morning we're going to do it a little bit differently. As I explain communion, I'm actually going to ask the ushers to grab the, the plates, and they're going to be serving you down the aisle this morning. When it comes your way, grab the wafer and the cup and just hold it, because in a few moments we will take it collectively together. So while the communion is being passed, I wanted to share with you a recent story from one of our projects and partners in Thailand. As a church, we've been fighting against human trafficking for over seven years and have seen great and incredible works of God. The, just this past year, over 200 girls and women have found freedom, hope, and love through our partners in Thailand. Let's celebrate that. It's amazing. We hear very similar stories from these girls, that they leave the poor area of their country and come down to the city to find work. They're destitute, they're from an ethnic minority group, so they suffer the same prejudice and injustices that we see in other nations, including our own. And they end up in the city within weeks being destitute and are often forced or moved into the sex slavery uh, world of Thailand. So shackled by chains of shame and pressures to send money home, many suffer abuses in this city. <clears throat> Recently, one of our Thai staff met a girl named Pai. She was 16 years old, getting ready to get on the bus at the smaller city. And the staff worker started engaging Pai in a conversation, and Pai shared similar story, being pressured out of her home, go to the city, find a job, make money, send it back home, or go find a foreign husband to make her life better. And it, as she started sharing this, the Thai worker just begged her to consider staying with them in the safe house, being part of our Freedom Stones jewelry project, and earning income right away. So Pai stayed. And within a week of being in that community, in that environment, she said, I have never experienced love like this before. And it was only a week later that she accepted Jesus Christ as her savior. We are thrilled to be part of stories of prevention that keep her from suffering what others have, the other abuses other people have suffered, that many of our girls and women experience. We're thankful that Pi has a hope and a future and is working on her secondary education. It's an amazing story. I love being part of this church over Lake and of the ministry with Serve the World. By God's grace and direction, we are unleashing hope in the world's most vulnerable not only are we seeing uh, people being set free in the Thailand sex trade, but we are partnering and seeing churches planted. Not buildings like this, but groups of people worshiping the Lord together in some of the least reached places like China, India, North Africa, and even into the Middle East. God's spirit is moving in mighty ways and people are coming to know him and are, are experiencing his presence in his life. We are seeking to care for street kids around the globe and partnering and pointing to models that are really making an impact. We have missionaries that are translating the Bible for ethnic groups of people that do not have the word of God in their own language. 
Can you imagine that? <laughs> How many Bibles do you have on your shelf and they don't even have one? We're coming alongside of great people who are fighting the war against HIV AIDS in their country. And we are seeking God in our midst over Lake, our, our own church, to offer all of our resources to make a difference even here in our own community. And incredible ministries have been birthed out of that. God is using you over Lake by your giving and your going and your praying to make a difference around the world. And it would be terrible for us to not include the rest of you. We want to invite you to engage in this to fulfill calling God might have on your life. So I think um, it looks like the ushers might be done serving. And I just want to make sure that everyone in here got served before we take communion together. Did everyone get served? I represent the 10,000 foster kids in Washington State who are still waiting for a permanent family, and we have not been served. I represent the 100 million street kids who are worldwide, and we've not been served. I represent the 2,000 women and girls on the streets in Seattle that are pregnant on a loan. We've not been served. I represent the four million Syrian refugees who are fleeing for their lives, desperate for hope. We have not been served. I represent 36 million people with HIV and AIDS struggling, or struggling with the, de um, the devastation of HIV and AIDS in the United States and around the world. We have not been served. I represent the 10,000 homeless people in King County. We have not been served. I represent the 500,000 um, people that have been trapped in Thailand in the sex slave industry. We have not been served. I represent the 1.6 billion Muslims in the world who do not have opportunity to know about Jesus, we have not been served. Church, Jesus died for us, but he died for them. Jesus died for the whole world, and he longs for all people to know his relentless love. That relentless love that can heal and transform tragedy into transformation. Isn't that the story of the cross? So together we will take communion this morning, both with gratitude for what Jesus has done for us and with a prayer for the world's vulnerable that somehow today in faith our collective prayer will make a difference in the life of an individual or a group of people. So Jesus, after giving thanks, lifted the bread and he said, take this bread, eat this in remembrance of me. And then he lifted up the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for the whole world. Drink this in remembrance of me. This is our call over Lake because of what Jesus did for us. It's us for them. So what's God challenging you to today? Where might you serve or go to unleash hope for the vulnerable people? Thanks for letting me share today.
the encouragement that I want to bring as I wrap this up is, is found in the, the question that the, the sheep ask Jesus and the goats ask Jesus. And, and it's just a, it's a little question. When did we see you? When did we see you, Jesus? And Jesus answers, when you saw that hungry person, when you saw that thirsty person, when you saw that homeless person, when you saw that refugee, that was me. And so I just want to ask this rhetorically. I want, I want you to wrestle with, do you want to see Jesus? You know, we, so many of us, we, we long to encounter God. We, we long to have those, those moments spiritually, and, and yet Jesus tells us really clearly, here's, here's how you meet me. Here's how you see me. If you want, if you want a more spiritual life, if you want a, more, a God-filled life, then, then this is how. And not only that, but I think there's this, there's this beautiful reality that every time we serve, every meal that we can offer, every blanket that we can extend, every act uh, wading in to bring justice where it's missing, every, every extension across the border of our comfort or across another kind of a border, every time we reach out into another socioeconomic level, every, every time we might reach out into some marginalized or some overlooked or some oppressed group, and every time we wade in with compassion, every single time, that's a story. And I just want you to know, I mean, I, I can't speak for you, I can only speak for me. I want my life to be filled with those kind of stories. I want my, my whole life, when I, whenever the time comes for me to end this journey on earth, I want to be able to look back and just see it filled and overfilled with stories of people experiencing the love of Jesus that I've been privileged to be a part of. Don't you? And I, I want to make this super practical because on the way out, there, there are tables set up in the hallway and, and there are folks... They'd love to connect with you. And, and there are ministries that, and mission trips that, that are designed to connect us, to connect the, the family of God here at Overlake with this idea of caring for the vulnerable. Us for them is actually practical and it's tangible. So please don't, don't leave today without having that conversation. I know, I know some of you, you know, this has been maybe a challenging kind of morning. Maybe it's been a little bit emotional. Maybe for some of you, you're like, man, I just want him to stop shouting at me. Like, I, I get it. But, but I just want to say there's an opportunity today to take this just from the head level or even the heart level, but make it a, a, a real practical hands and feet level today. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song, and the song has to do with surrender. And it's not a word that Americans like very much, surrender. It actually has a, it's a, somewhat of a negative connotation. It has to do with uh, giving up. It has to do with losing Americans don't surrender. French, they surrender. Americans, no. Yeah. It's not a word we like. And, and yet, in, in the theological realm, in the, in the spiritual realm, there, there's a really an interesting connection between surrender and satisfaction. And my whole life, I, I never saw it. My whole life, I, I never understood this connection. In fact, it wasn't until I, I went on a trip. I went on a mission trip to Kenya. 
And I've had the honor of being in Kenya a few different times in my life. Each time God's used it in a powerful and a profound way. But one trip, we were coming back. We had actually finished our mission. We were there a couple of weeks, and it was incredible. And God did amazing things and working with street kids, working with pastors. And on the way back, we went to Nairobi, getting ready to catch a flight to come home. And the night before we hopped the plane, they took us to a restaurant, and it was an amazing restaurant. It was a restaurant called The Carnivore, which to me sounded like heaven on earth. I happened to be a carnivore. So I, I, I was there at this restaurant. Now, they may have served vegetables. They, they may have had a salad bar. I didn't notice. All I noticed was that all of the waiters and waitresses, they were kind of walking around the restaurant. You sit at a big table, and they were all just kind of walking around holding a huge spit of meat. No joke. And they'd, they'd walk over. you just kind of wave to them. They'd walk over to you, and they would, with a machete, which I love, they just carve a slab of meat off of the, the you know, the, the chunk. They were, you know, what a, ch that does not sound appetizing. Trust me, it was awesome. They would just, a slab, you know, just like steak size would fall on your, and you would just, and, and, and they had every kind of, I mean, just so delicious. Africa, of course, many kinds of game and, you know, all kinds. Believe it or not, every animal is edible. I don't know if you knew that, but not every animal preferable. Uh, but, but, but it was just so amazing. And, and we, just, we just ate our fill after two weeks of living on just real kind of scarce provision. We were just, we, we just gorged ourselves. It was amazing. And they would come around, these waiters and waitresses, to eat to your plate, and they would give you meat until... At the front of your plate, there was a little white flag. <laughs> and you would just carefully raise the white flag when you were done. And you were signaling, I surrender. Right? I'm finished. I'm done. No more. And then they would come over to you to remove your plate and, and your silverware but they wouldn't ask you, are you full? That's what we say in America, but they're in Kenya, they're very British proper. They would ask, are you satisfied? And you'd say, I, I am satisfied. I'm well satisfied. Thank you. I give up. I'm done. Now, in Christ, he has come and he has cared for us. He has come and he has graced us, forgiving all of our sin. We're satisfied. That debt of sin, that burden that we carry around, Jesus has paid that debt in its entirety. We are satisfied. Not only that, but Jesus says, I will be with you today and tomorrow. And each and every moment of each and every day, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age and then for eternity. We are satisfied. And because we are satisfied in Christ, we can say, I surrender. I surrender it all. Everything I am is yours, God. Everything I have is yours. Every moment of every day, Jesus, it's yours. 
to use however you want, however you see fit. I surrender because I am satisfied. And when we do that, we live a life that is the very best life possible. When we, when we do that, when we surrender to Jesus, we get to experience the fullness and the richness of life that he has come to provide. When we do that, we get to experience Jesus each and every day as we see him in the eyes of those that we care for. We get to live an us-for-them life. And so I encourage you today that you would be satisfied in Jesus and that you would surrender everything to him. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes. Let's pray. Jesus, we just want to begin by saying thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that in our unlovable state and in our rebellion against you and when we were cranky and selfish and when we were greedy and lustful and when we wanted nothing to do with God, you still came and you still loved us and you still graced us and we are so thankful you did. Right now, we step into the full satisfaction that you provide. We don't need it anywhere else. We don't look anywhere else. We want to be satisfied in you. And because we're satisfied, Jesus, we tell you we surrender. We surrender our own plans. We surrender our own agendas. We surrender our own uh, stockpiling, our own fears regarding safety. We surrender everything. Because we want to live in us for them life. It's the life that you lived for us. That's the life we want to live for them. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.